Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. In the morning, like we drink coffee out because we lived in Melbourne for 10, we lived in Kew in Melbourne for 10 years, which is a really like coffee culture area and we got to become coffee snobs. And so we only drink coffee out, um, but we have tea at home. We drink tea at home. Now in the morning, when I pour my tea, or we pour the tea, um, often I'm in a hurry to go and the tea's too hot and I end up not being able to drink it all. And you throw half of it out, right? This is, this is half of the dilemma. The other half of the dilemma is at night, when I have a cup of tea after dinner, I've got more time. Actually, you end up, you're watching the news, you're doing something, and the tea just sits there brewing for like 10 minutes. And then you're going to get it, and it's, it's not hot enough. And this has been going on for years and years, right? And I feel like recently we've, we've just had this breakthrough where we're now like pouring the tea before we put the toast in. And then by the time the toast is ready, like the tea's just right. And then at night, we're pouring the tea, we're kind of looking at each other like, is it ready now? We're really monitoring when we're going to go out and get that tea. And then we get it and it's, it's just right. So I feel, I just want to rejoice with us that we, we've made this breakthrough in our lives and it's beautiful. But you might be wondering, what's that got to do with anything? Well, today we're talking about prayer, a praying church. And I got thinking, sometimes in our Christian life, we're too cold on the things we should be hot on. And we're too hot on the things that we should be cool on that don't really matter. And one of those things, I think, is prayer. We, we can be cool on prayer, but we need to be hot on prayer and on fire in prayer. And particularly in an affluent, highly technological society that we live in, we can think that prayer is kind of, you know, it's nice, it's quaint, it's a bit old-fashioned. But actually, you know, our technology, our expertise, uh, our our affluence and power, that's what gets things done. But in God's economy and in God's scenario, that's not how things work at all. God works in and through his people and in the world by partnering with us in prayer. Now, he's chosen to do that. He didn't need us. He doesn't need our prayers. He could do it all on his own. But God being gracious and kind has invited us as his people, as followers of Jesus, to serve him in the ministry of prayer in this world, in the the intercessory prayer and other forms of prayer that that he gives to us. And it's a beautiful thing. And we get to play a part. We get to shape history. We get to see lives transformed by God's power through our prayers, partnering with him. And it's something that Jesus was hot about. We saw last week when we looked at Jesus praying, he was a passionate man of prayer. And it's something that he wants his people to be hot about as well. Now, I don't know if you've heard of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You need to know that in the scientific world, this is a big thing. And I read a couple of things recently that in 
in, in the US, the head of the US's national observatories says the search for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe needs to be taken more seriously. And then Dr. Andrew Simeon from the University of California said, ever since human beings have looked up at the night sky and wondered, is there anyone out there? We now have the capacity to answer that question. Don't you love science? I love science. We can now answer that question. And perhaps to make a discovery that would rank as the most profound scientific discoveries in the history of humanity. That is that there's intelligence beyond, beyond earth, beyond human life. And I'm like, well, actually, there's a whole bunch of people who've made that discovery a long time ago. And that intelligence is called God, our creator. And you can read about him in the Bible. And there is intelligent life out there. There is intelligence. And it's God, the creator. And it's interesting that there's that heart and that hunger, even in, say, the, the atheist community, the science community, which isn't always atheist, but this sense of we need to pursue intelligence outside of ourselves. We can't just be here alone. And the beauty that God has given us this gift of, as his followers, to pray to him, to pray to the intelligent one, the wise one, the great one. And we don't have to just wait for well-meaning scientists to find this out for us. Now, prayer can be controversial as well. A few years ago, the ABC News site published a tweet, and this is what the tweet said. <laughs> prayer answered as New South Wales rainfall extinguishes 74-day bushfire. Now, it's fairly innocuous, isn't it? But it caused a bit of a cultural storm. And here's some of the tweet responses that people um, responded. Um, Prayers have no place in journalism. Hashtag, this is not journalism. Hey, ABC News, prayer had nothing to do with it. Please delete this offensive tweet. Hashtag, freedom from religion. Prayers answered? Question mark, question mark, question mark. You only need one question mark after a question. Seriously? ABC News, get this religious propaganda out of your lexicon. This rain came because science. Nothing more, nothing less. <laughs> hashtag, you are an idiot. That was my hashtag on that tweet. Because the irony is that most of the early pioneers of science were devout Christian people. They were praying people. And still even upwards of 40% of scientists today are believers, believe in God. So this kind of, this rain came because of science, it's just silly. But that's the worldview we have and it sometimes seeps into the church, this materialistic, scientific materialistic worldview where God is ridiculous, prayer is ridiculous, Everything has to be run through a lens and a filter of science. Now, science is really valuable and really important, and, uh, and we should pursue it. But science can't really teach us much about prayer. But fortunately, the Bible can, and that's where we're going now. I want to give us a bit of a biblical, fundamental overview of prayer, um, just a bit of a flyover, the Old Testament, um, flyover Jesus, because we did him last week, and then sort of land in the early church and just look at a few things about the early church community. Let's just 
also keep in mind, the early church community wasn't perfect. It wasn't like it just sort of dropped out of heaven and that's, it was exactly perfect. But they were close to Jesus and, and many of them had heard him and walked with him. So we get a sense of God at work there in a different way than, than for us. They had a different perspective because they were so close to Jesus. And we want to get a sense of what did it look like for them as they prayed? What did their prayer lives look like? But look, let's just have a look at the Old Testament. Um, Abraham prayed to God. Um, Moses prayed. In her deep anguish of childlessness, Hannah prayed to the Lord. And David, King David prayed. He wrote like so many of the Psalms. If you ever struggle in prayer like I do, use the Psalms. There's like 150 prayers there ready to go that you can pray. And I love reading the Psalms. I use them all the time in my prayer life. David prayed and he wrote prayers for us inspired by the Holy Spirit. The prophet Daniel got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to God three times a day. All through the Old Testament, you'll see God's people praying. You'll see them crying out to God. In fact, you'll see promises in the Old Testament that God gives to his people about how he will restore them when things go off track when they lose their way, when they walk away, when they make mistakes, when they fall short. God has given promises in the Old Testament on how he will bring his people back. Second Chronicles 7, 13 to 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, we should note that God shuts up heavens and there can be no rain. Or I command locusts to devour the land or I send a plague among my people. Sometimes people say, what sort of God would do that? And I often respond saying, well, a God that you should be really scared of. <laughs> a God that you should respect. A God that you should honour. A God that you should tremble before. But if my people who are called by my name, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And that's a promise that God gives in the Old Testament, a way for nations and peoples to come out of their dark seasons, their seasons of godlessness, their seasons of turning away from God, their seasons of pain and war and destitution. God says, if my people, not any people, not just all people, but if my people who call themselves by name will humble themselves and pray for their neighbours, for their nation, I will hear their prayers. I will turn and I will respond. And we saw last week that Jesus prayed. Um, we saw that he prayed a few ways, intentionally and disciplined. Um, he prayed alone. He loved time alone with God. He prayed with others regularly. But we also saw that Jesus prayed quite passionately. And I didn't want to give the impression that Jesus always walked around yelling while he prayed. But in Hebrews 5.7, it says that Jesus was hurt because of his reverent submission, but that he prayed with loud cries and tears from the one who could save him. That Jesus was passionate. He wasn't polite in his praying. He was raw and gutsy. And the people who were around him and walked with him saw him pour out his soul and his heart in prayer. And we'll see that that captured the early church as well. That's how they um, began to pray uh, in their communities as, as they got going in their mission. But I guess the main thing I want to say about prayer this morning, about being a praying church, is simply this. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
if, if you follow him, if he's your Lord, we pray uh, because Jesus told us to pray. That's enough. That's enough. There's a lot more that could be said about prayer, that needs to be said about prayer, that we won't say about prayer today. But the simple basic fact is that Jesus called his people to pray. And that's enough. Christianity is basically this, if you're new to church, listening to Jesus and doing what he says. That's it. That's it. That's all you need to know. There's more to know and there's more to learn. But start there. Christianity is listening to Jesus. You can read the Gospels and hear what he said. Listening to him by his spirit that he gives us as we come to faith in him. And then doing what he says. And Jesus said to pray. Matthew 6, 5 to 7. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, go into your room. Pray on your own to your heavenly Father. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. Because prayer is not a uniquely Christian thing. In Jesus' day, lots of different religious groups and cultural groups prayed. And some of their prayer was kind of nuts. It was crazy. It was just people babbling and screaming out and getting themselves up into a frenzy, trying to get the God's attention somehow. Jesus is like, you don't have to pray like a babbling idiot. Anyway, Jesus said, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. And then he told a story in Luke 18, quite a quirky little story about um, a widow who was looking to get justice and there was this unjust judge and he wouldn't give her justice. He wouldn't listen. But she kept pestering him. She kept pestering the judge day after day. And eventually the judge gave up, even though he didn't believe in God, he wasn't a godly man. He's like, oh, this woman just keeps pestering me. I'll give her what we want. Now, Jesus told that story not to say that, that God's like the judge, that we should just pester God and he'll give us what we want, but that we should persevere in prayer. It's one of those little parables where Jesus actually tells us, or Luke tells us, why Jesus told the parable. Sometimes parables can be a bit um, more difficult to understand, but this one, Luke says, Jesus told this parable to show his disciples that they should always pray and never give up. Jesus told that parable to tell his disciples they should always pray and never give up. Until you die, then you can stop praying because you like see Jesus and your prayer life will end then, but not now. And then he says at the end of the, the parable, Jesus says this, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, no. He will see that they get justice and quickly. And there's a little sting in the tail as there often is in Jesus' parables. There's a little sting. However, when the Son of Man comes, when I return, says Jesus, will I find faith on earth? Will I find faith among my people? And what does that faith look like? It looks like people who are persistent and persevering in prayer. That's what faith looks like to Jesus. When I come, he says, will I find my people faithfully praying, faithfully calling out to me? And let's be real here. Jesus was unhappy one day about the prayer life of his disciples. I know it hurts to think that Jesus can get unhappy with us sometimes, but he does 
And, and I feel that in my own life sometimes. Jesus loves us so much that he tells us the truth. Don't you want a saviour, a king who is truthful to you? that doesn't just tell you what you want to hear, that doesn't just massage and stroke your ego to make you feel good, but he loves us so much that he tells us the truth. And one day, amen, at least one person wants that. Then (laughs) Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross to give his life as a ransom, as salvation for the sins of the world for us. And his disciples are praying with him. Well, actually, they're sleeping. (laughs) I actually think once, I I don't know if this is theologically correct, but I'm going to put it out there. If you're praying and you fall asleep and then you wake up and start praying, I think that falling asleep part between that, I think that counts as prayer. I think God counts that. So I just want to encourage you in that. Um, So Jesus returned to his disciples. This is Matthew 26, verse 40. He returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And this is where he gets a bit unhappy. He says, couldn't you men keep watch for me for one hour? He's like, hey guys, what's the deal? Couldn't you even like stay and watch with me and pray for one hour? They're like, oh, I'm tired, Jesus. (laughs) Sorry. And he goes, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body is weak. And I get this sense Jesus is kind of like saying to him, guys, if you knew what stalks you spiritually, if you knew the threats and dangers to your spiritual lives that are powers of evil, your own flesh and temptations, you would never stop praying because you'd be crying out to God, give me strength, Lord help me. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation and trial. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus encourages us to pray, not as kind of a guilt or a condemnation thing, but he doesn't want us to miss out on the blessings and the resources and the strength and the encouragement that comes through prayer. There are some things I think that God will only accomplish and do in our lives through prayer, through our prayers and the prayers of those around us. And it's like he wants us to take hold of that. He wants us to receive those things. And prayer is his sovereign design on how he wants to work things into our lives. Now, just a couple of other quick things. Prayer is not magic. It's not magic. They're not spells or incantations that we send out for protection and favour. That's pagan. That's not Christian prayer. And prayer is not easy. As Jesus just alluded to, our flesh, our body hates it at times. It takes guts, grit and determination to pray. It costs us and demands something from us. Prayer is not for the faint-hearted or half-hearted. And sometimes when you talk about prayer like this, you can feel convicted and you might be feeling convicted now and that's okay. Um, God does convict us. I feel convicted about this. Um, it, it's a kind of a, a signal of how our life with God is in terms of how we're praying. Prayer is a relationship. It's an honour and a privilege given by God through Jesus. It's a blessing, a source of strength. Prayer 
is a source of reward from God. Jesus promises that as we pray, as we set aside time for prayer, as we pray with others, he promises to reward us. That's okay, right? Um, doesn't mean that we just pray for reward, but we should know that prayer brings reward, brings blessing to us. And prayer is God's sovereign choice to help transform us in our world. So let's do a quick flyover of the early church in the book of Acts and just see what they were like at praying. Now, I should warn you, I should have started off by warning you about prayer and even maybe discourage you from praying. Um, not, I'm not talking about the nice religious prayers, you know, around thank you for this meal, Lord, give us safe travels, whatever. Like you can pray that sort of stuff, you're not going to be in any trouble. But I'm talking about the prayer that we see in the Bible, in the book of Acts. I should warn you, discourage you. Like there should be a warning on this, like a label, like on a cigarette packet. Like if you're going to enter into this sort of prayer, be warned that things will happen, that things will change, that things will shift, that God will act, that your life will never be the same. Just be warned if you want to enter into the kind of praying that we see in the early church community, um, things will change, things will shift. God will act and your life will change. I see three things. Interestingly, as a Baptist pastor, most sermons I see three things. Um, and this one is no, no different. I see three things in this text. Um, there could be four, there could be two. But I see three uh, in, the, in the book of Acts uh, across prayer for the early church. I see these three things in the early church as they prayed. I see that they were, and you'll see that these things like, they all start with I. It's, it's some sort of miracle that Baptist pastors do. I don't even know how I do it. I received the alliteration anointing when I was ordained and I'm just going with it. But number one, they were inflamed by God's Spirit. They were inflamed by God's Spirit. Number two, they were informed by God's Word in how they prayed. They were informed by God's Word. And number three, they were infused. I think that's what infused would look like, like that. They were infused by God's love. Their prayers were inflamed by God's spirit, informed by God's word, and infused by God's love. Let's just have a look at them just quickly. But I'll tell you a story. I remember years ago when I was um, just finishing off my ministry training and I was asked to be the speaker at, at like a, a youth camp in Victoria. And I was a bit nervous because, you know, it was, it was a big thing. Uh, There's going to be like 100 kids there, by the way. Be praying for our youth there on camp this weekend. There's over 100, maybe 150 with leaders down um, at Milo. Uh, and, um, yeah, be praying for our youth camp this weekend. But I was asked to be the speaker and I started joining the team to get ready for this camp like a couple of months out. And to be honest... I was a bit of a newcomer. I was in Churches of Christ at the time. And I've been one of those people, I've had no pedigree in churches my whole life. I don't like, like my father wasn't a pastor. My grandfather wasn't a missionary. My great-grandfather wasn't Moses. So I don't have this pedigree, you know, like you hear from people. And that's okay. I'm not disparaging that. I wish I did have some pedigree. But like I'm a nobody, you know, in Church of Christ or Baptist circles. I don't have Baptist royalty, um, blood, you know, whatever. So I was on this camp and I'm the speaker. They're like, who's this guy? You you know, what does he know? We never heard of him. And um, I'm doing the planning meetings and I was starting to get this sense of, I was getting really frustrated because there was never any prayer. 
I just felt there was this kind of camp. It was just going to all be about fun. And these kids would come. And, and every time we had our planning meeting, it was like, it was just, you know, Coke and chocolate and sitting around, uh, maybe the odd pizza. And it was all just, they're all chummy, chummy. And I don't really feel part of their group. And I was sitting there going, isn't this meant to be about Jesus and about the Bible and helping young people know Christ? And, and they were nice people, but there was just this culture that had seeped in. And I was, really, I was really struggling with it. So the first night of camp, I just felt so burdened. I, I kind of did a bit of a talk and it went pretty flat and I felt more burdened. And um, so I, like 11 o'clock, I'm like, I couldn't sleep. And so I go into the, the auditorium room where the, all the stuff was happening over the next four days and I just start praying. And I just start, I'm on my face, I'm on my knees. And like for two hours, I'm just in there praying, crying out to God, like, help me, Lord. I suck as a preacher. Uh, this camp sucks. I don't want to be here. I hate it. Um, and I'm just crying out to God. And then the next night, I did the same. And uh, the next morning, the, the talk went a bit better and made some connection. By the third day, got a little bit better. Same thing at night. I'm just crying out on my own. I'm, I'm praying. God gave me the gift of speaking in tongues when I became a Christian, so I'm praying in tongues. I don't even know what I'm praying. But I'm just trying everything. I'm throwing everything up at God. Help me, Lord, help me. And then the fourth night, like we had, the fourth night was the, the big kind of, you know, night where people could make a decision for Jesus. And I get up and I do a pretty basic kind of talk, went for about 20 minutes. And, um, and then I prayed. And like, just the room broke out. It's like God's spirit just kind of fell really powerfully. And kids, like teenagers, were suddenly all over the room weeping and crying and, and just praying to God and crying out to God. And there was one guy there I remember from my church, um, a young guy, um, Andrew, if you're watching online, Andrew, I love you. Um, but uh, this was 30 years ago, so it's all right, 25. He was a difficult guy, always obnoxious, always trouble, always a pain. He was just terrible. And he's just there weeping and giving his life to Jesus. And I, I remember learning back then going, Nick, it's not about you as a preacher. It's not about the, the skill set of the team. If, if we don't pray in our ministries and in our churches, um, stuff like that surprisingly doesn't happen much. We don't see people come to faith. We don't see God work. And that taught me early on that prayer, inflamed by God's spirit, informed by his word, infused by his love, is how God wants to work in the world. And I could take no credit for anything that happened there because I wasn't teaching, I wasn't great. Um, the team was shocking. And yet God moved powerfully. And I just put it down to the fact that I partnered with him in prayer. I cried out to him in my desperation. But actually, that's what we should have been doing all along. You don't have to wait for a crisis and things to hit the wall before you cry out to God. And we see in Acts 1.14, this beautiful picture of the church. They all joined together. This is before the Holy Spirit's poured out, by the way. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Do you know, I thought about this. The early church didn't have church services. They had prayer meetings. <laughs> like this would have been foreign to them. Like they would have all been up there this morning at the pre-prayer service meeting. That would have been the service. They didn't kind of do it like this. Um, and that's okay. We can evolve and grow and maybe we know something they didn't know. But their gatherings were just like, Let's get together, let's pray, let's sing spontaneously, let's worship God. Some of the leaders will get up and give a word. Um, they all join together constantly in prayer. And I looked up that word in Greek, constantly. You know what it means? Constantly. <laughs> Along with the women 
And Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. I love this. This is one of my favourite verses in the Bible. And most verses in the Bible are my favourite. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you've got a Catholic background, I've got some Catholic friends. Tell them we love Mary as Baptists. We just don't think you should pray to her. And tell them the reason why we think that is because this is the last time we hear and see Mary, hear of and see Mary in Scripture. And what's she doing? She's with the believers, praying with them in the name of her son. Imagine that. She's a special woman, Mary, but not special enough that we pray to her because here she is praying with all the other believers. The other thing that you need to note here is that Luke says they join constantly together in prayer along with the women. Ooh. <laughs> if you were reading this as a first century Jewish man, you wouldn't have said, ooh. You would have been horrified and outraged because women weren't allowed to pray with the men. If you go to Jerusalem now and go to the Western Wall, you'll see a big section there where all the men get to pray. There's another section over there where the women get to pray. In Jesus' day, the temple had different jurisdictions. The men, the high priest could go into the holy place. The men could go into the the inner court. The Gentile men could go to the outer court. And the Jewish women would be out here somewhere. They weren't allowed to participate in the prayer life of the people of God. Do you see how powerful this is? There's nothing in Scripture that's ever there by chance. The Holy Spirit doesn't go, I've got some space here. I might just give a bit more detail that there were women present. Um, No, it's there because God is saying Jesus has broken down the barrier. And not only that, you go, what's this got to do with being inflamed by God's Spirit, Nick? You might not ask that, but that's what I asked myself when I was preparing. And what it's got to do with that is Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, where the prophet, hundreds of years earlier, had said this, the day of the Lord, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So they prayed inflamed by God's spirit as one people, men and women, praying, serving the Lord together. They are informed by God's Word. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted, that's the disciples, that's all of the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What was the apostles' teaching? What do you think it was? What were the apostles teaching the new Christians? Jesus. The four Gospels, they were teaching them all that Jesus taught. They are also teaching them from the Old Testament, the Word of God that they had at that time. So teaching God's Word, teaching about Christ was at the centre of, of the church is praying. So when they gathered, someone would have taught. 
Someone would have brought the Word of Jesus. Someone would have unpacked what the Old Testament said about Jesus, what we're doing now, what we do each week. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We could just say to biblical teaching and to the message of Christ, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Did you notice that no one else devoted them? (laughs) You had to devote yourself to prayer. It wasn't compelled or wasn't compulsory, but they voluntarily devoted themselves to hearing God's Word, gathering together regularly, probably daily, for many decades of the early church. I know one week's a big-ass people, I get it, but try and be here. It's really important. It's really important to gather as God's people. And why do we have to know about Scriptures when we pray? Because we need to know who we're praying to. Who is this God? What's He like? What's He done in history? What's He said in the past? We need to know who he is, what he's done, what he said, so that our prayers can have power in truth, can be shaped by his light, his truth, his wisdom. We don't need to be eloquent or kind of fancy when we pray. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're going to have a relationship with someone, if you want to deepen that relationship, it helps to know something about them. And thankfully, God's given us his word where he's revealed his character. He's revealed his acts and deeds in history. He's revealed what he said in the past. He's revealed his son, Jesus, in the scriptures. Then our prayers can have real power. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, you see when the early church was being persecuted, they came back together, they were being threatened with death, and they're like, oh, we better be careful. No, they didn't say that. They came back together when they were threatened to Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. The legal authorities, the governing authorities said, if you keep doing this, we're going to put you in jail or we'll even put you to death. They're like, oh, scary. <laughs> That's, I'm adding those bits. That's not in the Bible. Um, and it says, when they heard these threats, what did they do? They raised their voices together in prayer to God. It's nothing like persecution or threat to lead you to prayer. And imagine the power of that gathering. Would have been a group about this big, maybe, you know, 100, couple of hundred, maybe more. Um, and they raise their voices in prayer to God. And then what do they say to God? Well, they quote Psalm chapter 2. Someone's recording this. Someone speaks out a word in that prayer gathering and they quote Psalm 2. They actually pray God's word back to him. And they quote this psalm which talks about God laughing at the powerful rulers of the earth. God actually laughing at them. And I can imagine some people are laughing in their prayer meeting. They're like, hey, Lord, we remember Psalm 2. You're just laughing at these rulers. You're just laughing at these dictators and these authoritarians who are trying to shut us down. You think it's funny, Lord. And we ask you, God, to give us even more boldness. Give us even more power to speak your word. We're not scared of these silly bullies. And they know God's word and it gives them power. It gives them courage in prayer. Like, oh, this is really bad. Like, what are we going to do? Like, the authorities are going to hurt us. They're going to stop us gathering. And like, yeah, bring it on. We're going to talk to the sovereign Lord about you, you Weasley dictators. That's not, that's me again. That's not in the Bible. Now, that's why it's important to read the Bible because preachers can just make stuff up too. Um, 
so they prayed, they prayed that. And that's why we have life groups as a church community. That's why we want people to gather together to study God's Word, to be informed and instructed by God's Word so that we know who He is, what He's done, what He's said, and informs our living and our praying. Um, and, and that's a really important part of our church community. Thirdly, they're infused by God's love. They're infused by God's love. Acts chapter 6, verse 4 This is what the apostles say. When the church hits a bit of a crisis, in the book of Acts, it's not a perfect church. There's a bit of a Barney breaks out between the the Greek Jewish women and the Jewish, the Greek um, speaking women and the Jewish speaking women. A bit of a thing breaks out in the church around the service of food. (laughs) There's a lot in this which I won't go into, but that's all you need to know. And there's a bit of a tension between this cultural group of women and this cultural group of women. And it's starting to infect the church. It's starting to inhibit their mission and their ministry. The apostles are like, we're going to do something about this. Because that's what leadership is, right? We need to do something about this rather than just let things go. And they said, look, appoint seven people and let them take care of this. They've got to be filled with the Spirit, godly people, godly men. Point them, fill them. They're filled with the Spirit and let them deal with this. And listen to what they say in Acts 6 verse 4. And we, that's the the apostles, the, the leaders of the church ministry at this point, we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And I see that this is infused by love because the ministry of the Word means another way of saying sharing the good news of Jesus with people. They're like, church, you've got to get it together. You've got to sort this out because Jesus has asked us and given us a mission to share his love and his word with people. We can't get bogged down in all this other stuff. We need to pray and we need to share God's word. We need to share Jesus with people. That's what we have to focus on. That's what we're about, people. So can you sort out the other stuff, church? Because we have to give our attention to prayer, to praying for our church community and for non-believers, to the ministry of the word, to our church community and to non-believers. Because that's what God, God's love impels us, compels us to do. They kept proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And by that, they showed they were motivated by love. Because what did they have to gain? There was no financial gain for them. They were losing their employment. They were being harassed and ridiculed. They were being hated. They were being threatened by the authorities. What was it that was compelling them to say, we've got to keep speaking the good news of Jesus. We can't stop. They weren't personally gaining anything from that. Many of them were put to death in that first century for doing so. They had to be infused by God's love. It was God's love that drove them. As Paul says in Romans 5.5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. And he says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And it's love what drove the early church. And Jesus said, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And I'm going to say this. This could be maybe the most important thing I say in the next 30 seconds. Prayerlessness in the life of a Christian is a disaster, but it's actually a symptom of a bigger problem. Prayerlessness 
is actually a symptom of a bigger problem. And that problem is lovelessness. Prayerlessness equals a lacking in love for God and a lacking in love for others who need to know God. Inflamed by God's spirit, informed by God's word, infused by his love. I love what Alastair Begg, pastor in America, says. Our conversation with others declares what is on our minds, but our conversation with God in private reveals what is in our hearts. Listen to someone pray or listen to yourself pray and you'll gain a window into the very centre of the being. Or put it another way, The way we use our money and spend our time reveals a great deal about what are our real priorities and what are our real beliefs. And so do our prayers. Whether we pray, for whom we pray, and what we pray reveals where our heart is at. And the early church, their heart was inflamed by God's spirit in prayer. They were informed by God's word. They knew whom they were praying to. They knew his character. They knew his acts and deeds in history. They knew his word, what he had said. They knew his son, Jesus, whom he has revealed. And they are infused by God's love. Prayer is a love affair with God and with his work in the world. I'll share a story. We're going to sing in a moment and Um, I actually want us to spend a bit of time praying together as well in groups. If that freaks you out, now's the time to get ready for that. (laughs) I've given you a warning. Or if you're new to church and you've never prayed before, this could be your moment. You could test prayer today. You could pray and see what God might do. We're just going to get together in some groups and pray about a couple of things I want us to pray about as a church. Because I thought, how can you do a message on a praying church and have everyone just sit there for too long and, and for me going on too long? So we won't do that. Um, but I'll tell you a little story about a guy that was in a church in Melbourne where I pastored, a beautiful godly man. When I met him, he was in his late 80s, early 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. His name was Howard Barclay. And um, he was a saintly, godly man. And he'd rock up at the pre-service prayer meeting every morning, every Sunday. He was always there, um, rain, hail or shine. And um, he was a wonderful, godly man. He had spent like 40 years, maybe longer, as on mission in Nepal uh, from the 1950s. But his story goes way back further. His mother, when she was 16 was in church one day in a inner city church in Melbourne and a visiting speaker came who had talked about Nepal. Um, we say Nepal, but Howard used to say Nepal and he lived there for 50 years, so I'm going with Nepal. And the speaker talked about that it was a closed country, closed to the gospel, that no Westerners could get in there, no Western Christian agencies or missionaries could get in there. It was a closed country. And how he'd been praying for Nepal and God had put it on his heart. And this young 16-year-old girl caught a vision and God did something in her heart about Nepal. And from that day, she began praying regularly and faithfully for Nepal. That it would open up, that the gospel would go in and she formed a prayer group. And they, I think they're still going. It's like 100 odd years later, the Nepali Fellowship, um, Prayer Fellowship. She formed a group to pray. And she began to pray with this group in Nepal. Well, 
50 years later, her son, Howard, um, she didn't have a son then, she wasn't married, but when she got married and had a son, he was waiting in India on the edge of the border within Nepal with a group of Christians praying for when it would be open. He was one of the first Christians to go into that country. He was at the baptism of the first Nepali Christian in the 1950s. There's over a million Christians in Nepal now. God has done an amazing work in that country over the past 50 or 60 years. And I look back and think, to what extent and and where will credit go that that young 16-year-old girl, woman, caught a burden and a vision for a people who had never heard about Jesus and who had no chance of hearing about Jesus because their country was closed off to the wider world. And through her prayers over decades, her faithful prayers over decades, God chose to use her son to be one of the first Christian missionaries to go into that country to bring the gospel to the people of Nepal. And he would stand at the baptism of the first person in Nepal who confessed their faith in Jesus. And that now there would be over a million Christians in that country who call on the name of Jesus. To what extent when history is wrapped up, when it's all said and done, that 16-year-old girl, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, who dedicated her whole life to pray for that nation, to pray for that country. And now so many know and love Jesus there. I invite the team to come back up. And we're going to sing, and we're going to sing um, and worship God. I just, I just want to talk about that for a moment too, because as I went through the book of Acts, I thought, how many times does the author, Luke, um, describe and portray the church as singing? Do you know how many times in the book of Acts the church is described, or Christians are described as singing? Do you know how many times, do you reckon? It's up from none. Once. <laughs> It's once, and it's when Paul and Silas were in prison and they were singing and praying to God. Now, 23 times in the book of Acts, Luke describes the church or Christians at prayer. Now, I love singing. I'm a worship guy. Um, I could worship for hours singing. But I just want to say that to say that when we sing, we're praying. When we sing, we're praying, okay? So as we sing, let it be prayer. Let it come from our hearts, this worship. Our worship is prayer. Our prayer is worship. I want us to sing together, but I don't want us to sing together. I want us to worship and pray together. And then I'm going to get up after this song and I'm going to invite us in groups for just five or seven minutes to pray about a couple of things as a church community. And again, if you don't feel comfortable with that, don't feel pressured. We're not going to press you to do that, but we are a praying church because every church is a praying church. In fact, Um, there can be no church without prayer. So let's sing and worship together and then let me come up and lead us in prayer and then get us together in some groups and I'll give you a couple of things that, that I'd like you to be praying about. So let's sing, pray and worship now together. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. 
We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.